Welcome to Ideas Untrapped, and I am your host, Toby Lawson. Ideas Untrapped is a podcast that examines the role of ideas in a political economy. It's also a podcast about spreading ideas on growth, development, and progress. This is Ideas Untrapped, and my guest today is Chris Olalua Ogumodede. He's a foreign policy analyst, writer, editor, and political risk consultant. His work centers on political institutions and foreign policy of African countries, particularly in the West African region. And he has extensive experience working across Africa, Europe, and the United States. He is an editor at The Republic, a Pan-African global affairs publication. You're welcome, Chris. It's a pleasure to have you here. A pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. I'm glad to be here. One detail quickly that I want to take listening to your answer is the role of ideas in all of this and mm-hmm. messaging from the top or the center, so to speak. Mm-hmm. President Buhari has a bit of a perceptive reputation, I would say, mm-hmm. as inflexible. Inflexible, mm-hmm. he's set in his ways, he has his idea. I mean, we just talked about the cabinet. I remember, I think it was his first and probably the only media chat that he had where <laughs> he said permanent secretaries are the ones running the government. Yes. You, ministers and exchange rate was so and so in 1983 outcome it is so and so in 2016 Mm. you know so what is the role of ideas in how the transmission mechanism of governance really really works you know so if the man at the center if the leader if the visionary so to speak have some of these funny, archaic ideas about things. Is mm. there really any hope for governance? You know, so that's one. Secondly, which is one of the things you touched on in your answer, you talked about how PDP was formed, the experience with succession and governance. And I'm leaning a lot on Carl Levan here talking about how the post-colonial government, especially after the civil war, has always worked in Nigeria by different veto power structures, exerting mm-hmm. influences, pushing each other. Mm-hmm. But in that same process, I see someone like President Buhari, even right from his days in the military and even afterward, as a bit of an outsider to that mm-hmm. process. So yes. it does not come with all the governing credentials, so to speak, or should I say experience. So how much do these two things, ideas and experience in actual governance and influence with the governance structure behind power, how much do these two things influence the way APC evolved as a ruling party? Yeah, I I think a lot. As you pointed out, this is a president who you could charitably call incurious about a lot of things. And 
he relies on a very small circle of advisors, the cabal, as it were. You know, that's the sort of colloquial description for his advisors. Many of them share his views on economics, on uh, security, on practically everything that's important. This is also not a, President Buhari is not a, he's not particularly gregarious, he's not particularly outgoing, he's something of a loner, he's a quite austere person. You contrast him with former President Obasanjo, for example, who couldn't be any more different, even though they were both military heads of state. You know, President Obasanjo is something of an intellectual, he's written so many books, I mean, he ran for UN Secretary General at one point. He's someone who you will find on panels all over the way, even to this day. Like, this is a person who has a worldview. He sees himself as an African intellectual statesman and has behaved that way. Not even just today, as far back as when he left the armed force, when he handed over in 79. This is someone who has engaged himself in African affairs in particular. He's been a peace envoy to this person, to that person, you know, whether it's Charles Taylor, whether it's in Togo. This is someone who is often dispatching himself to be at the center of especially things that have to do with Africa. He's someone who relies on a number of young. One thing people don't know, and just in the interest of disclosure, he's someone I know somewhat well. You know, President Obasanjo is someone who relies on a lot of scholars academics, think tanks, you know, he has a presidential library now, he's long had a foundation, you know, these are things he uses to project not just his influence, but his willingness to learn so much about the world. When he was president, he was the kind of person who, if you went to see him about something, about a policy issue, and you felt it's something that was worthy of his attention, and he got the sense that you knew so much about it, he was ready to offer you a job right there, that he would say to you things like, oh, okay, why don't you come and take this position like that? President Buhari is not like that. And this is where intellectual curiosity as a leader is consequential. Like I said, President Obasanjo had all of his flaws and, you know, there isn't enough time to go through all of them. But mm. he had that ability to, one, spot ideas or at least listen to ideas if he'd never heard of them before. He was even willing to be pushed on his ideas. You know, when you read The Accidental Public Servant by El Rufai, where he talks about his time working for OBGN, you get the sense that that's the kind of really, it was a somewhat combative relationship, but it was one of begrudging respect because he felt El Rufai was someone worth listening to. He understood so much about governance, about public policy, public administration, and all of that. So that's the kind of person President Obasanjo was. Whereas with President Buhari, it's only his inner circle and well, everyone get lost. That lack of curiosity shows. That's why their policy responses in the administration on every issue is quite predictable. You can spot from a mile away what the administration would do on any issue. It's either to ban this thing or to regulate that thing or, you know, they are a hammer that sees nails everywhere in mm. you know, the administration. And that's because that's the tone that's been set from the top. The mm. ministers and other members of the cabinet don't have a close relationship with him. They don't have any real influence. They certainly don't have any power. And that's by design. These were people who, in some ways, were foisted upon him, and he just had to accept them. You know, like you pointed out, he 
you said something about how ministers don't really run the government and it's perm sex. He only picked ministers, frankly, because he had to. He was more than happy to, you know, roll with the people he was rolling with. So the ministers he selected are essentially part of a spoil system to him. Now, broadly, that's democratic politics as a rule. But, you know, like you pointed out, that there's a constellation of forces as far as governance is concerned. But with him, none of that is there. And because, like I mentioned, APC as a party consists of several different moving parts with very little in common, the internal mechanisms of the party are not that strong and it became very evident with all of the parallel congresses and fighting factions. At one point, the party chairman was fighting with the governors and they eventually got him removed. I'm referring to Oshomole. They got him removed. There is so much reliance on the personality of President Buhari. So when he sets a tone, everyone simply just falls in line with it. Now, of course, that generally tends to happen in many democratic systems, you know. In many democratic systems, especially ones with weak political parties, that's what tends to happen, where the president or prime minister, depending on the system, becomes like a sort of patrimonial figure where what he says is essentially an edict. You know, I would say APC is a weak party by virtue of the fact that they have no real means of resolving internal disputes without making them turn into something else. And it had to require the intervention of Buhari to resolve the issues with Oshomole and the NEC and the governors and all of this stuff. So apart from the fact that many of the governors and other elites in APC already agree with him on several policy issues, those who don't have no incentive but to fall in line. Now, you contrast with PDP, where, especially under Yara Dua, who was basically an old-style Marxist for all intents and purposes, you know. Mm. The fact that he was that type of person succeeding a president who I would regard as a neoliberal president, Obasanjo, tells you the kind of diversity of thought inside PDP. People always say, oh, there is no ideology in Nigerian politics. There is nothing that differentiates. That's actually not true. There are ideological differences, clear ones, actually. PDP has something of a sort of free market, at least it used to anyway, a free mm. market orientation towards certainly um, economic matters. You know, we had the privatizations, the deregulations of the Obasanjo years, and then the Jonathan years. Whereas with APC, they are much more of a social democratic slash democratic socialist party. You know, at least the people who formed the core of APC, when they did, you know, PC Akonde and all these other people, these are old style union, you know, student union, teachers union types of, you know, farmer and labor groups. Those are the elements that came, at least in Southwest APC. Those are the elements that became the elites in the party. And, you know, many of them came from ACN, and before that, AC, and before that, Alliance for Democracy, and then before that, whether it was SDP or Action Group, because you know, some of these guys are that old. Somebody like Dicia Conde has been in politics days of the Action Group under Awolowo. So, you know, mm -hmm. that's the genesis of their political worldview. So there are clear differences between the parties. What I think people are referring to is the fact that parties are weak. So, like I said, internal democracy is non-existent, party discipline is non-existent, 
So it means that the party is as strong as a couple of dominant figures who can come in and exert their will. For example, a, a party primary, you can come in and essentially buy the nomination under some circumstances, ignoring what the rest of the party might want. Governors are known to exert so much influence on parties, especially in the states, because there is very little that binds the parties together. You know, in political science, they refer to it as party system institutionalization. That means the parties aren't really regarded as legitimate across society. They are not wedded to society. Yes, people vote for them. You know, they exist in, in they are registered and all of that. But for one thing, the low turnout in elections tells you that the overwhelming majority of voters do not regard them as legitimate. So at the end of the day, because they are the only ones who participate and can exert their will because internal party dynamics are so weak, that makes it easy to move from party to party. One minute to a PDP, one minute to an APC, one minute to a Labour Party, one minute to an Afghan. So people conflate the fact that the parties are so weak that people can come and go with the fact that there is no governing idea. There are clear differences when it comes to ideology. It's just because the parties are so weak, any dominant figure can just come and impose his will on the party and everybody goes. So, for example, Wike is basically the leader of opposition in PDP and something I talked about a few weeks ago on Twitter after the Edo election. Wike has basically been PDP's leader since 2015 because the National Party is so weak and rudderless. At this point, Wike is the most dominant of all the PDP governors. He governs a wealthy state, at least relative to the rest of the country. He's basically the leader of the opposition in real terms. Yes, you know, they have a PDP chairman and all this other stuff, but Wike is the most dominant PDP figure in Nigeria. And that is because he has been able to exert himself on the party. Normally, political parties should be expressions of several different things a uniting ideology that brings different factions because, you know, there will always be people with different views and things like that. Why you want a broader governing philosophy. For example, in the U.S., the Democratic Party are regarded as center-left. The Republicans are regarded as right. In Nigeria, those labels don't quite work as well because, well, first of all, what is left in Nigeria, what is right? And like I said, the parties are so weak that anyone can be one thing today and the next thing is another tomorrow. It's not that there is no prevailing ideology. It's just that the parties are largely the aggregation of one dominant figure's interest or several dominant figure's interests. So it's very easy to come in and stamp your authority and get your way. So all of this is why governance, as it were, under the Buhari administration, has mostly been predictable and one-way traffic. Back when Bakiari was still alive, people always used to say, oh, he was secretly the president. I don't think that was necessarily true. What was mm. true was that President Buhari had a set of ideas and Abakiari was the enforcer. And that is literally the role of a chief of staff. In the U.S., that is literally what a chief of staff does. The chief of staff is basically the president's number one protector. That's all he is concerned with. There have been lots of books written about the White House Chief of Staff. And one thing you will come to understand about that role is that the person thinks from one point of view only the president will stop. He doesn't think about the vice president, doesn't think about the cabinet, doesn't even think about himself, or at least he shouldn't. You think about what the president wants, 
and you defend it to a T. That's basically what Abakiari did. Of course, because Abakiari and President Buhari were ideologically soulmates, all of their prescriptions matched, and President Buhari trusted him, respected him, so so much, and he was a very hardworking man. So it was very easy for people to say, oh, Abakiari is the one pulling the strings. He was a very powerful person, no question about that. I'm not trying to dispute that at all. What I'm saying is that it wasn't nearly as sinister as people thought. Here was a situation where he had been given a lot of free reign to govern by his principle, and that's what he did. So that is what governance under Buhari has been like. You know, at least as far as federal government, the president said the tone at the top and Bakiari then, and now Ambassador Gambari affects what the president wants, and that's it. There is no sense of internal debating. There really isn't one, because there is no balance of power of that kind. You know, In certain governments, you get those kinds of situations where one person feels like, oh, this is my view, that person has his view. You know, Obasanjo used to encourage that kind of interaction. Even Jonathan, to a certain extent, used to. But with President Buhari, you know, if disagreements emerge, they are largely spontaneous, largely because people will always have their own agendas, their own interests. But a lot of it is largely going on with the president's total oblivion towards yeah. And might actually have to update my priors on ideology in, in the Nigerian political system because my partner always tell me PDP is capitalist. And I remember my consternation on the show when everybody actually said APC is center-left. I was like, well, but interesting point of view raised there. Briefly, let's talk about President Obasanjo. Okay. A lot of people still consider him the best president we've ever had. Um, I would generally agree with that, you know, all yeah. things considered. One thing, and the people who know him, and different accounts about his time in government, tell you that he's very hands-on, he knows what's going on. There's never really a confusion about who's in charge, even though he's open to ideas and dissent and gives the people that he trusts a lot of latitude to be creative with uh, policy. But there's something important that I want to raise, and that's the issue of power bucking. I mean, we just mm-hmm. talked about KR. There's this perception that in the current administration, there's some kind of power And that perception is fed by how much time it usually takes the presidency to react to mm-hmm. some issues of national crisis. I remember when the COVID-19 outbreak first reached Nigeria, people both on social media and in the traditional media were for weeks calling for the president to come out and speak. And we can say the same for a lot of other things, including MSARS. Mm-hmm. There are mm-hmm. people who still think today that the signal about the reforms, because now one of the government's defense is like, oh, we were responsive. You guys said you wanted this, dissolve SARS, blah, blah, blah. But some people have the view, at which I agree, that if the dissolution of SARS 
had been a presidential order or pronouncement, then it could have calmed a lot of nerves, especially among mm -hmm. protesters. So mm -hmm. let's talk about the issue of poverty. Is it real? Mm -hmm. Is it not? And how much did President Obasanjo's legacy matter here, particularly in the area of succession? Because a lot of mm -hmm. people still see the handing over to Yaradua. Some say, maybe rather sinisterly, that it was his last act of revenge for <laughs> not getting the yeah. court down. But we know that President Yaradua, for all his good intentions and his good heart, was not really a man of good health. Yes. You know, and we had this period where transition, even handing over constitutionally to vice president became problematic yes. because of the cabal, so to speak. There was some sort of vacuum. So yes. how much does President Obasanjo's legacy matter here in the presidential tradition that have sort of yes. been in play since the end of his administration? Yeah, that, and that's a, actually a very useful question because I believe that it's quite under-discussed. And here's why I say that. President Obasanjo is the first civilian democratic president in the Fourth Republic, right? He comes in with this wealth of experience. You know, he's been a military head of states. Obviously, he's a career military officer. He was a commander in the Civil War and all of this stuff. He was on the Supreme Military Council as number two to uh, Murtala Mohammed and all of this. So here's a person who comes into government and civilian democratic politics practically with a very good sense of what he wants to do. And, of course, he brings his own personal traits and all of this stuff into governance and politics. He's a very towering, some might say overbearing figure. And he exerted a lot of hard power. You know, Obasanjo frankly was an authoritarian if we are going to be frank you know and because like i said he's the first one of the fourth republic so he has framed for nigerians what a president should be like because don't forget before him the last president we had was in 1983 so many nigerians before Obasanjo don't have any recollection of what a civilian president is like so in real terms Obasanjo is the first civilian president for millions of Nigerians ever, ever, because many of them weren't born. And like you pointed out, many people regard him as the best leader broadly post-independent Nigeria had, the things he did on the economy and all of this other stuff. Along that came with, frankly, a lot of political baggage, you know. We don't talk enough about how many of the problems that he fell PDP, where things that he put in place were problems he started to create, whether it was handpicking candidates for PDP, whether it's muscling out PDP chairmen who disagree with him, whether it's, you know, instigating issues with governors that eventually lead to their impeachment. You know, a lot of this aggrandizing behavior started with Obasanjo. So a lot of what we've come to understand as far as the mythology of the Nigerian president is of him, that colors everything we now come to understand about the way a president should be like. So the president must always be seen. He must always speak. He must always this. He must always that. So 
That is why, if you remember during the Jonathan years, and people always said, oh, he was weak, he was indecisive, and people were running roughshod over him, and this and that. That's because he chose to be hands-off. There is no right or wrong way to administer government. The devil is always in the details of the decisions you make or don't make. So in that sense, people always looked at Jonathan through the prisms of Obasan Joe. And to a large extent, people continue to look at Buhari through the prisms of Obasan Joe, forgetting one, times are different, times have changed. Buhari and Jonathan are different people. There's never been this sense of allowing the institution to grow. You know, it's not the Nigerian presidency. It's the Nigerian president, if that makes sense. In the U.S., we talk about the modern American presidency. It's this grandiose, king-like of... In fact, there's a book by a guy called Arthur Schlesinger called The Imperial Presidency, talking Mm -hmm. about how the American presidency is essentially a king and how the president in real terms is beyond the authority of Congress and the Constitution and all of this stuff. You know, if you think the American president is an imperial one, I would argue the same is true about the Nigerian president, even more so, because in the Nigerian constitution, the structure of the distribution of power favors the Nigerian president even more so than the contextual equivalent in the U.S. You are aware what has happened is that the American president has assumed a lot of powers for himself. Oh, oh well, how, well, yes, on him, because there's only been male president. The American president has assumed a lot of powers for himself, and when... And they have gone to the courts. The courts have sided with the executive branch. You know, the American presidency, at least as far as the Constitution goes, is quite a weak one. The enumerated powers of the American president are quite specific and they are quite minimal. But political developments over the last century in particular have granted the American president so many powers where at this point, especially on matters of national security and foreign policy, the president can frankly do whatever the hell he wants, and everything else will be after the fact. I would say in Nigeria, the enumerated powers of the president are even much more pronounced, and the political powers that the president has assumed more so. So that colors how people view the Nigerian presidency. And then when you look at the fact that the National Assembly has so much turnover, I think the eighth National Assembly had a turnover rate of, I believe, I may not be exact here, but about 66%. That means 66% of members of the National Assembly, of the 8th National Assembly, did not come back. That's a terrible development if you care about separation of powers. The institutional memory of the National Assembly is lost, basically. Not Mm. when you have two-thirds of the class gone, Mm. and then the president stays. But two-thirds, including, by the way, the Senate president, let's not forget, the Senate yeah. president was among those who departed. That is a loss of not just the institutional memory of governance, but also the understanding of intergovernment relations. And then the fact that you have to bring up all these new people up to speed on how governance works and how to be a good legislator. You know, one of the most important lessons I learned as a young student was doing an internship on Capitol Hill. I spent some time in the constituency office of the U.S. Senator. And one of the most valuable lessons I learned was how much time U.S. Senators put into learning the procedural rules of the Senate and how much powers 
they had institutionally, collectively, and individually. That how much power does one senator have, whether you're in the majority or minority, but especially when you're in the majority, where you can actually get things done, how much power does his caucus or her caucus, and then what are the powers of the Senate? Some senators spend a whole year learning this stuff because it's so important. It literally affects everything they do from the passing of the budget, the reconciliation process, parliamentary rules as far as presiding in the Senate. Back then when they still used to have what they call earmarks, which are basically senators reserving certain pet projects for their constituency. There's a million and one things senators have to learn, basically, when they take office. You know, so there are 100 U.S. senators. Imagine 66 of them are gone. And a new set now, granted, all 100 seats aren't up at the same time. But imagine such a scenario where 66 go and another 66 have to come back. That gives the advantage to the executive branch. That's exactly what we have in Nigeria, where two-thirds of every Senate, every National Assembly class is gone. And the new ones have to come and start learning how government works. Meanwhile, the president has been there the whole time. If you care about authoritarianism, that's something you should want to fix. A lot of political science literature talks about the fact that legislatures need a period of 20 years post-transition, as this is when they are coming out of authoritarian rule, whether it's a military dictatorship or something like that. But, you know, legislatures need about 20 years to become really strong and capable enough to enforce the principle of separation of powers. It gets harder to do that when two-thirds of your class is gone every time. And these are the things that I think much of the commentariat doesn't discuss enough. Like, you know, we talk so much about restructuring things. That I've always made a point that, personally, I think the National Assembly needs more former governors and not fewer. And this is a very controversial point because, you know, we all talk about how governors turn the Senate to a retirement home, blah, blah, blah. But there's actually a good sense of how former governors, having done a lot of the hard work of negotiating, understanding how, especially public finance works, how to allocate certain benefits towards your constituency, how parliamentary rules work. Governors tend to know these things very well. Governors tend to also understand the informal side of legislative politics you know, agenda setting and all of that, how to build alliances in the Senate, how to work across party lines. Governors tend to know how to do that stuff very well because they've done it when they were governors. Whereas with people who aren't governors, they haven't been executives, they haven't had to deal with budgets and things like that. It's quite a learning curve. And these are some of the reasons why the Nigerian presidency remains as outsized relative to the National Assembly, even though it's not supposed to be that way. You know, the National Assembly, well, one of its powers is oversight over the executive branch, over the presidency. But in real terms, especially in this current dispensation, that's why people talk about it as a rubber stamp, because in real terms, the political power is an unequal one. All of the power has been situated in Aso Villa, and the National Assembly simply just rubber stamps. They go with the flow of the villa. It's not supposed to be that way. And all of these developments largely stem from the Obasanjo years, where Obasanjo was meddling constantly in the National Assembly's business. You know, if you remember, there were five different Senate presidents 
when Obasanjo Joe was president. Five. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, I remember um and when Two uh, or three Okadibu, speakers. Exactly, exactly. Okadibo, uh Wabara, I mean um Ennamani, that's it. So, you know, those years were very tumultuous and those were very crucial years because like I said, that's the first democratic dispensation of the fourth republic. So the groundwork that was laid back then is one that continues to still affect the Nigerian political dispensation. Obviously, over time, there was a bit more stability. You know, David Mark was Senate president for eight years and all of that stuff. Some stability came over time, yes, but it didn't change the fact that, and this is how institutions work, going back to what we discussed. You know, it's not a straight line. The signs of decline of institutional quality are often very apparent a long time ago, but, you know, sometimes they move forward, they recede again, they move forward, and they recede even further, but it's, you know, life doesn't move in a straight line, and that's essentially the point we have gotten to right now, where because of a number of, and these are mostly political developments, they are not strictly constitutional ones, they are largely structural and political. Because of the things Obasanjo did, so much has come to be normalized. Now, if you remember when the National Assembly had all those fights about who would be principal officers during that interregnum where APC won the election, but we're waiting to be sworn in. If you remember, President Buhari said something about, oh, he didn't want to get involved in their matter and he wanted them to sort this out themselves. And many, at least much of the commenting class found that to be strange. That's an example of what I'm referring to. Because we were so used to in the Obasanjo years, him meddling in the National Assembly's business, the idea that a president would not want to get involved in the selection of the National Assembly's business, it seems so strange. So these are some of the changes over time that if people, especially in civil society, say they want to see as far as good governance, better governance, these are some of the issues we need to address. It can't always be about the presidency, the presidency and the presidency. To me, restructuring has got to be about all of these ideas. What kinds of powers, authority do you want the National Assembly to have? What kind of authority do you want state governors to have? What should the relationship between state governors and the House of Assembly be? Do you want them to continue to be, you know, appendages of the governor? Or do you actually want them to be functional? You know, these are the kinds of iterative conversations that we don't have enough of. And if you want a proper restructuring, whatever restructuring means to you as a Nigerian, these are some of the things you need to consider. Those are very interesting thoughts, Chris. My final question, so to speak, on mm. Nigeria, our beloved country, is that... Yeah. Here we are. A lot of young people, they came out about an issue they are passionate about. They largely conducted themselves peacefully. They spoke their hearts. They expected mm. their government to hear them. And they are not asking for too much. But here we are. It has mm. ended exactly the way Nigeria handles things. Lots of violence, lots of denial. No one is really taking responsibility or leadership. Yes. What is the way forward? A lot of people are talking about elections. Yeah, we yeah, just have yeah. to vote these people out. Is it really yeah. as simple as electing the right people? Is it restructuring? What exactly does that mean? You know, 
a lot of the conversations we have about restructuring is about constitutional reforms, rewriting the constitution and big conferences and some of these processes that makes consensus very, very difficult to get to, you know. Mm -hmm. Are there quick gains right now that you think can be delivered to Nigerians? I mean, there's a lot to suggest that a lot of progress can be made, even in the immediate. The, yeah. the judicial panel in Lagos is a good example. Today, I was reading in the news that they made an unannounced visit to the military hospital to examine bodies. Mm -hmm. They had a pathologist trying to test the system and hold it accountable within the powers that you have as a state mm -hmm. government. Those are examples of a quick gain. So why are we not doing these things? Why are we not testing the system and examining the fault lines, so to speak? Also, there's the issue of apathy. A lot of people say parties win elections in Nigeria by largely relying on their political base. You have state elections where you barely get 200,000 total votes. Yeah. You understand? Yeah. So a lot of people don't vote, mostly young people. So is voter apathy part of the problem? And if they come out and vote for their preferred candidate, how are they sure that their preferred candidates are going to be on the ballot to begin with? You know, so many other issues. The issue of money in politics is also an example. So many research has put you need a billion naira to become a senator in Nigeria. Three billion to become yeah. a governor. And you have young people who want to go into politics and try to change the system. Are they not disempowered by the yeah. with the way we have designed this system? So, so many questions, but what is the way forward in the long term, in the medium term, and in the short term? Those are very important questions because right now, at least as of this moment, the large-scale demonstrations have practically ended, at least in Nigeria. You know, there's still lots of marches abroad and things like that. But in Nigeria, at least in the big cities anyway, the large-scale marching to this place and that place is over. But there's a bit of uncertainty about what's next. Now, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of, oh, 2023 and PVC Youth Party, I did a bit of a thread last week talking exactly about this. That First of all, we have agreed that NSAS, one of the subtexts of it is that the status quo is not working and we are going to have to reconfigure the way we go about civic engagement, right? Okay. Mm. So when we look at the last inflection point in Nigerian politics, I would say it was the end of the military regime when Abacha died and the transition. What was the, at least in my view anyway, what was the mistake that was made? There were several, but one of the key ones was that many of the activists, you know, whether they were Nadeko campaign for democracy or whatever else, everybody ran to politics. Not literally everybody, but much of the muscle behind all of those campaigns whether it was Bolatin, Obu, Bisiya Konde, or everybody ran to electoral politics. Let me be specific. They ran into electoral politics. That's not a problem in and of itself. But 
In building institutions, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. Imagine a scenario where people like Ganifanwe Emi, for example, built up legal aid organizations, built up the judiciary, public defenders, their mandates and prestige were strengthened. Civil society organizations across a variety of policy issues were built up. Professional associations were built up. Religious organizations took on more of a civically responsible role as opposed to what they are doing right now, which in my view is not any of that. So the point I'm making is that imagine if there were a much larger constellation of forces, of social forces in the political space, as opposed to political parties and electoral politics alone. What would likely have happened is that the political class would have been forced to compete better simply because, for example, you come up with one policy idea or the National Assembly take one bill up for consideration. The civil society pushback, especially if it's a really unpopular one, the civil society pushback, you know, professional organizations like the NBA and all of that stuff, writers groups, creative groups, trade unions and the likes. Everybody came up in arms expressing their opposition, their collective civic opposition to certain things. You know, that would have spelled for one thing, the ability of countervailing forces in the political system to make their own voice heard. But because all of the muscle from the democracy campaign, everybody ran to politics. You know, some people didn't. People like Alaoa, Kaaba, Shonru, and the likes, they didn't go into politics. But a large number of the activists from the 1990s, they went to politics, including, of course, Ghani himself. So that made electoral politics the, you know, crown jewel of civic participation. So when I start to see all this stuff about PVC and 2010, it just seems to me like a repetition of all of that. Like I've seen so much, oh, Femco should be turned to a structure. Femco should be turned to a party. Oh, FK should run for office. And I'm thinking to myself, is that the only way that any of these people or these organizations can make change in Nigeria? If you are telling me that's the only way, then we're in bigger trouble than I thought. Because as far as I know, there are people who are still locked up in prisons across the country with no one to get them out. There are schools that are still crumbling. You know, there are a variety of policy issues across the board that we could address now. Those problems will not wait for 2023. Sorry to interrupt you, Chris. This is such an important but underrated point you're making. I mean, it's such an important one. I can't possibly amplify enough. During these old protests and all, I pointed out to a couple of friends about the decline of civil society. I don't know mm. how that came about, but you talking about everybody going to electoral politics now seems to be connecting the dots. Look at SARS, for example, and this menace. Mm. Someone like Chief Ghani, God rest his soul, by now would have buried SARS in an avalanche of lawsuits. A long time ago. Eh? A long time ago. Are you telling me people like Ghani, Alawaka, Bashan, who took on the armed forces could not deal with a problem like SARS if given the institutional environment to work with? Please. Exactly. I mean, one of the 
empowering presidencies, even for state judicial panels today, and I've seen a couple of lawyers cite this to me on social media, is Fawe Imi versus Babangida in 2003. Someone did that. Someone took the initiative to do that. So, like you, I'm also quite worried about this narrative of we all have to go into politics as if there are no other instrumentalities of the society. It, it honestly that. confuses me when I hear it. Like, so, everyone has been saying, oh, feminist coalition should run for... And when I say this, it's an agnostic position I'm taking that. They may be good political leaders, they may not be. I don't know. But what I am pushing back against is the inherency of the fact that because they have demonstrated such brilliance in political organizing in one area of civil society that it's necessarily going to translate to political office. I don't think that's necessarily true. And it's worth interrogating because when you say you want to vote for somebody, you should ask yourself, why is it that you want that person as opposed to however number of other candidates? There ought to be something you are voting for. How do you know that because somebody was a good organizer in a social movement or a protest movement, they would necessarily make a good policy maker or a political leader? You ought to ask yourself those questions. And when you don't, you are simply repeating the mistakes we made in 1998-99, where, frankly, a lot of people who shouldn't have been in politics got into politics. And, well, you know, here we are. That's a brilliant point. needs to be said over and over and over again. I mean, I would tell people that ordinary protests, they are bringing thugs. Uh, exactly. Imagine what <laughs> they would do to win an election, you know? So I know I sort of derailed your answer, but I mean... No, not much at all. I think, I think, no, it's very much part of the point in that, you know, we, we cannot simply think voting the right people, quote-unquote. I think it's very connected. What, first of all, what is the right people? You've got to ask that foundational question. Who are the right people? What ideas are you looking for? And even if you get the right people, the educated class in Nigeria likes to bang on about institutions, and I've explained sort of why I find that to be counterproductive. You know, you talk about institutions, well, what kind of institutions are you going to build if you think all it takes is that you get in the right people, well, people change. You know, I did a tweet two days ago talking about um, Alpha Conde, the Guinean president. So here's this guy who spent, what, four decades in opposition, right? He gets sentenced to death in absentia by Secutori. He's actually jailed by um, Lansania Conte, the successor of uh, Secutori. So he's basically suffered a whole lot as an activist. Here is this guy now as president, slaughtering people just because he wants a third term. Mm-hmm. We can say the same of Atara. Ex- exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, this is literally Africa's story all over, across the board, of people who spend years in opposition fighting this person, that person, ducking bullets, running abroad, you know, living in exile, only for them to get into power and do, at the very least, the exact same thing, if not worse. So, to me, all this, ah, yes, get the right people. There is no way 
if you want the right people, they've got to be backed up by the right set of institutions, the right norms and countervailing forces that are using. Politics fundamentally is about creating rival power structures. Uh, that's why, for example, the principle of separation of powers exists so that one arm of the government doesn't become too powerful. Even in the electoral realm, it ought to exist. That's why, for example, there are wings in a party, right? So in one party, there might be a left wing, there might be a moderate wing, there might be a right wing. You know, you need countervailing forces to keep each other honest, to constantly make you compete, not to get drunk on power. But when you say, oh, we're getting the right people, but you don't create that environment, they are not going to be the right people. Quote it's just not going to happen because power is a corrupting influence. If you put in the right people, quote unquote, first of all, what do you know they are going to do in office? Who are they going to rely on as advisors? What do they intend to achieve in 100 days, uh, six months, a year, and then four years? What is it that they consider to be their priorities? What do they understand governance to be? You know, these are the sets of questions that when you start to ask, will give you a sense of the kind of environment you want to design for these so-called right people to go in there. Because when you start asking certain questions, you recognize they cannot do it alone. They cannot do it alone because governance is a collective effort. But when you simply leave it as, oh, the right people, you know, because, you know, ah, during answers, he was an organizer, or she was an organizer, yes and that, this, that doesn't necessarily mean they know anything about governance. It doesn't. And I feel it's still early days. We are still mostly reeling from that horrible killing. Uh, you know, this stuff is iterative and old habits die hard, right? So I get that for the most part. People are going to fall back on what they know. But at the same time, we should be willing to challenge even the things we consider to be settled knowledge. And one of those things that I really think we have to challenge is this idea that electoral politics and running for office is the only way to make change. When you get to a situation where even people, uh, celebrities now, think the next game in town, is to run for office. I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing, but ultimately, it's for you as the voter to determine if you want such people representing you. Because you like an album they put out 10 years ago does not mean you want them representing you in the State House of Assembly or the National Assembly or some place like that. And I feel like so too so much of the... Look at this <laughs> I mean, this is the Twitter Nigeria gave this guy hell. They gave him hell, and deservedly so. I mean, look at how much of a fool of himself he's made. And unfortunately, he's already in there, and he's going to be there until 2023. So not unless you can recall him or something, you are going to have to live with, at least his constituents will anyway, will have to live with the fact that this guy doesn't know what he's doing. And those are the kinds of lessons we ought to start learning now. Start to tackle people in office now. Start to think about who you want representing you now. Start to familiarize with your local representatives now. Start to sensitize your neighbors, your association members, your church or mosque members now. There are a million and one things you can do now that don't have to wait until 2023. The problems that exist today will not wait for 2023. So why should you? Those are 
powerful, powerful insights, Chris. But yes. finally, before I let you go, regarding Nigeria, and this is sort of a tradition on the show, what is the one idea that you would like to see spread? That we like to see people adopt? An idea that we like to see rise in status, so to speak? It's very simple. We've got to develop a culture of critique. I think what we need in Nigeria is foundational ideas and notions that are at the heart of everything we do, everything we believe, and everything we desire as Nigerians, because they will inevitably seep into politics. And that's a culture of critique. One of the good things I've taken away from these answers protests is that the young people have zero respect for any appeals to authority. They don't care if you went to Harvard, you are a PAMSEC, or you are a general. They don't even care if you are the president, as a matter of fact. You have to make sense. And for me, like that's what I find so instructive about that phrase, Sorosoke. It's not just a literal phrase saying speak up. They are also telling you to make sense. It's not just about speaking up. You have to make sense. What you are saying must tally with what the average person understands intuitively. So, you know, I say this because for so much of our past, especially older generations like us and up, we have simply given in to authority blindly. Whatever they say, shut up, sit down, and you sit down, shut up. Especially for we Yoruba people, there's a saying in Yoruba, you don't say an elder is lying. We've got to change things like that, I'm sorry. Those kinds of beliefs are fundamentally incompatible with a knowledge-seeking society. This idea that someone's ideas are untouchable because of their status or their age, we've got to get rid of things like that. You know? And this extends across society. We've got to be able to critique. And I say this because, so you've seen all the videos of these Lagos State House of Assembly members saying, oh, they're on drugs, blah, blah, blah. Well, one of the reasons every one of them is reacting this way, they are simply not used to being challenged. It's as simple as that. They are not used to so-called children on Twitter calling them out, saying things about them. And don't forget that what is on Twitter is no longer even within the domain of Nigeria alone. This is stuff all over the world. So it's being fed back to them, and they can't control it. That is why everyone is up in arms and saying, oh, all you know, the social media people are doing this and that. Because these people cannot deal with the fact that people they don't even regard as anything useful are pushing back at them, challenging them. They do not see people on Twitter as a constituency of voters. They see them as children. These kinds of ideas have got to go. It does not matter whether you are the president or whether you are a pauper. You should be able to have your ideas challenged. You know, I didn't go to university in Nigeria. I didn't go beyond Genesis 3. So one thing I've heard from so many people is how in Nigerian universities you can't challenge your lecturer. You can't say this and that. That's absolute nonsense. Why can't you challenge your lecturer? Why can't you critique the ideas of somebody who claims to be teaching? That's the entire essence of pedagogy, of classroom education, that you bring up ideas, of course, with reason. Not every single idea deserves to be debated, in my view. But for the most part, most topics within a scholastic framework 
can be debated. So this idea that oh, if your your lecturer says something or that if you don't answer a, a test question the way your lecturer wants it to be answered, they mark you that these are things I've heard so many times and I've no reason to doubt. I'm sure they are true. These things sound absolutely insane to me. That, and it stems from this culture of suppressing the ingenuity of young people. You know, people are not allowed to challenge ideas. You know, you say something, shut up, what do you know? Do you know you are talking to is a professor, is a minister? Who cares? Who cares? Like, we have got to be able to critique ideas. And a lot of our political cultures, a lot of our social interactions, a lot of our economic interactions stem from the fact that whenever there is perceived to be a power imbalance, the person on the lower totem of the power pool has got to remain there and shut up. That's not how societies progress. Ideas have got to be challenged, they've got to be critiqued, and they've got to be revised sometimes. And it doesn't matter who is saying what. You know, it's not always black and white, to be sure. It's not always a case of right versus wrong. But that's all the more reason why ideas need to be contested. We do not contest ideas in Nigeria collectively. We don't. Like uh, Daddy Gio said, the governor said, the prof said, who cares? You've got to be able to challenge ideas. Yeah, so if I had one thing to pick, it would be that. We need to develop a culture of critique of everybody around us, including ourselves, even you. You should be open to critique, and others should be open to critique from you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Krishna. It's been fantastic talking to you. Likewise, it's been absolutely a pleasure. Thank you so much for hosting me. You can subscribe to the podcast on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and the rest. Or you can just subscribe directly at our website, ideasontrap.com. Mm-hmm.